And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about family. What that means. What it means when someone becomes one of your people. For me, I've got a family of origin, and I'm also blessed with a rich and vast network, a family of choice. People whose paths crossed mine over the years, and now they're just kind of stuck with me. <laughs> Today's guest is one of those. And so I figured what better to talk about with Brent Barrett than family. Brent is a deeply talented guy. He's a renowned talent of Broadway. He has starred in just about every musical you've heard of. I'll give you a taste. Phantom of the Opera, Music Man, Chicago, Grand Hotel, Camelot, West Side Story. The list is long, and it would be after a 40-year career. In an industry that is saturated with competition and rejection, one of the things he says that's most grounding is the sense of family that exists among performers and crews. It's a sense of togetherness. Whether it's a one-night concert or an extended run, there's a connection, a connection that lasts. For Brent, there are a few words that come up when you're thinking of family. For him, it's connection, support, and resilience. And when I asked about where that deep love and emotional connection began, you guessed it, we talked about dogs. In particular, one named Boris. I'm Kathy Brooks, and this is Talk Unleashed. I'd like to start with you, Brent, where, where I start with all of my guests, which is um, I'm going to say something, and I want you to say just kind of the first thought or memory that comes to your mind when I say the memory or the thought of a pet or an animal in your life, what comes to mind? Boris. Mm. Boris was our first little boy. We, uh, when Bernie and I moved here in, um, in 2006, uh, we, uh, we ended up uh, adopting a little bird that fell out of its nest. I won't go into the, all the details of it, but Bernie. Well, was, it is an interesting, it is an interesting story uh, that you move you into a say, house like an, and a, like a, a mockingbird. You end up raising a mockingbird. Randomly. We, I found this little, this little bird. I thought it was a dead bird on the side of our house. And, uh, uh, and I went around the corner and I asked Bernie, Hey Bernie, how are you with dead birds? I think we, we've got to tell, oh, I thought I turned this thing off. Uh, I've got a dead bird on the side of the house and, uh, can you come over and take care of it? So he, um, uh, went over and went to pick it up and it hopped and it was still alive. It was just about the size of a golf ball with a beak. And uh, it turned out to be a mockingbird that obviously had fallen out of its nest somewhere uh, very close by. Um, and uh, we actually, the first thing we, we put a little box, we, we, we called the, the bird shelter out in North uh, Las Vegas and it was 4th of July weekend. They were getting ready to close. We ran it out there and they said, well, then we really can't take it. And, you know, mockingbirds, there's only a 50% chance of it living. And, and of course, Bernie was, was not having that. So he said, 
what, well, what do we need to do? So they said, well, you go to the store and get the baby bird formula, mix it up, and you have to feed it every three hours in order if you, if you, if there's any chance of it surviving. And so that's what we did. We got a little cage for it. We, um, I would go, I would go to work at night. He would be lying on our, on our bedroom floor with the bird right in his sternum. And I'd come home from work four hours later and he'd still be lying there with a little bird on his <laughs> So we raised it. We taught it how to fly. It was, uh, it, it imprinted on us. It would run, it would just sit on our heads while we were doing things around the house or on our shoulder. And it really, we were his, we were his parents. And um, so when it got to the time to, that it was time we needed, we had to get another cage because it got big. His tail feathers got about three or four inches long. And so we said, all right, it's time. It's time to, uh, to send him back out into, yeah, about, yeah, out into the wild. Oh, another side note. It's funny. When I'd be upstairs. I'd be playing. The only person he would ever sing for was Barry Manilow. Whenever I turned Barry, you know, we'd have Barry, Barry Manor would be playing on the music system. He'd start singing along. Is that crazy? Hilarious. So anyway, that's just a sidebar. Um, and um, so we finally released him out into the wild and Bernie was devastated. He would, he would go away, then he'd fly back after a week. Uh, but then eventually the bird flies away. And so bird and takes up residency in the tree across the street. When we come out the front door, it would fly from... Um, that tree over to our tree, you know? So I, I, I feel it never really left while we were living there, but once it was gone and Bernie was devastated, I decided he needed something to foster. So I said, so we started looking for a, 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 a dog and uh, we went to pet stores to look at different breeds to see what we thought would be a good match for us and us for them. And uh, we came out of a pet store one day and um, uh, there were these three little dogs down the sidewalk and we went to, to see, we went, you know, we were just, we were just going, hi, who are you? And the, the, and their owner was very sweet and they were the friendliest, the best um, little, 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 little dogs and they were Shih Tzu's. And he said that there was a breeder in Pabrump where he had gotten them from. And he thought that, that that she had a little boy available. So we emailed or texted her and she had a little boy. Um, um, but she said, you know, he's got some issues with his hips. And we, she sent us a picture. We fell in love instantly. She brought Boris or he brought the little puppy in and he was he was just cuddled up with a little, it was a little um, laundry basket. It was a towel on the bottom and the little boy and his little sister was right next to him all cuddled up. And we said, okay, we looked at each other. And we said, we'll take both of them. <laughs> and um, the, uh, the woman said, well, I've kind of promised her to someone. We said, well, you have to unpromise because we're going to take both of them. <laughs> and, you've, you've shared a really interesting story. So, you know, Boris has these, um, kind of dodgy hips, doesn't really use his hind legs very well. Yeah. And, um, you, but you tell a really interesting story about Boris and- And his little sister. And his little sister who sister. really, mm -hmm. really wasn't just his love and support, but really changed his life in a pretty fundamental way. Yeah, when, 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 
they they were we we set up a little pen downstairs for them where they you know where 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 they were um, <laughs> where we kept them uh, but you know when when we weren't like around like a play like a playpen it was, yeah. it was a giant playpen and um and then we noticed as Bianca started maturing and was walking Boris was still kind of was using his front paws to drag himself along because his rear legs weren't functioning properly. And then we noticed Bianca fighting at his right at his hind legs to get him to, to help to help to teach him to use them. You know, whatever deficiency he had, she managed to um, really teach him how to walk. So, but the message, when I think about the message that lands from that, and this idea of living like in, in a collective like this, you know, animals, they live in groups, you know, dogs, they live in these families and the families, you know, really support each other. And, you know, you think about fundamentally that, you know, two puppies from a litter, one inspiring another to walk. And you think about what that would be if those were be, you know, were to have been two human children. You know, and mm -hmm. and what might that have looked like, especially in today's day and age where it's like everybody out for themselves. So, I mean, I, I would love to know from you when you think about the lessons that landed for you as you watch these two dogs together, because Bianca, who was so pivotal for Boris in those early days, didn't live very long. No, Boris had all of the issues, the bad hips, the bad teeth. I mean, eventually he, he always had ear infections. And Bianca was this picture of health and vitality. And we, she, but it, it turned out she had some kind of a, of a heart issue and she died when she was five. And yet we had Boris till he was 13. You know, I don't know that. But, and Boris, you know, Boris was so special. He was, they were both so smart because Bernie started training them when, when they were, when, as soon as we got them. And they, we could walk around the neighborhood and he would all he taught them for, with voice commands and with hand commands, which really helped later in life. When Morris couldn't hear anymore, he, Bernie, we could just put our hand up and do whatever you know, do our hand gestures, and he would obey. You know, mm -hmm. um, so it, it, um, so it's just interesting that she is the one who. <laughs> for all intents and purposes, was the the picture of health. And yet Boris is the one who made, Boris was the one who survived longer. So the word that keeps coming up for me is family. Mm -hmm. Family. What does family mean to you? Um, well, let's do it in this context. Um, in the context of our family, with Bernie and with Boris and Bianca, and Bernie went back to school at 50, and oh my God, the meltdowns he would have at night. And if I was I was gone traveling and on tour, and and Boris would be the first one to come over and just start pawing at him. To say, Daddy, calm down. It's all going to be okay. <laughs> just makes me cry. Yeah, well, and it's about and when he couldn't walk, we're out on walks, and with his when he got older and his hips were bothering him, he just do a sit down. I just pick him up and I carry him the rest of the way. Mm. You know, you know, it's interesting. You know, you bring up that the dog coming to comfort 
in a moment of sadness. Uh, it's something I've actually been talking quite a bit about this in the last several days with different clients, with different training programs I'm working on. And, um, you know, it's interesting because it's a, it's a balance, right? That the, as the leaders of the dogs, so dogs only understand the world in a hierarchical structure. They understand order and roles and responsibilities with clearly defined leadership at the top. And there's no peer base. Like I'm not my dog's friend. I'm not my dog's peer. I'm my dog's superior. I am their leader. Mm -hmm. And yet there are moments where as their leader, I'm, I am weak for whatever reason. I am upset. I am tired. I am not well, physically not well, whatever the case may be. And in those moments, they step forward to support me, but they're just moments that, that it's, it's almost like in the moment that they comfort me, I get clear headed enough to realize, wait, I get to get my head on straight because they need me. Uh, right. Mm -hmm. You know? And so family, cause you, cause you didn't really answer my question. Oh, so when I what, think of family, what does it mm -hmm. mean? What does family mean to you? Like, where does the word land for you? And, and, and when you look at the family that you have created, you and Bernie, and now with Blaze and Basha, and you know that you've, you know, um, you know the the family of of choice that you've gathered around you, family of origin with it, whom you're still connected. All of it, that. it is definitely choice. Um, you know, my mother's still here. She's she. We, we moved her out here four years ago, and she's in memory care now, and she's turning 105 next week. Oh, yeah. It's just, just unfathomable. Um, can I say unfathomable? Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, but we do as we get older, you know, uh, we're, we're a real Midwestern family. We're, you know, we weren't touchy feely, cozy, you know, any of that, but we're still, we're friendly. I'm, you know, on very good terms with my brother and stuff, but we're, you know, we don't talk every day. We don't have that kind of, re of relationship. Um, so the family, like my New York family that I created when I was there, we are still best friends. Even my partner, Norman, who we were together 20 years, we don't, you know, we don't talk all the time, but we're still on very good terms. And so the family that we have here is our family, you know, um, and that's, I, I mean, that's just the way I am. And kind of the way, you know, the way Bernie is. He lived in Germany for 20 years and he has family over there. They're not blood family, but they're definitely family. It sounds to me that family means connection and support. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the, in the, the industry in which you have spent the last 40 years, you know, it's a, people think of it as it's, you know, super competitive and it's, you know, doggy dog, no pun intended, you know, very, mm -hmm backstabby throat, you know, cutthroat, you know, vicious. And yet some of the most powerful connections that I've seen, some of the most uh, long-term relationships that I've been witness to, you know, I look at you, I look at our friend, mutual friend, Lisa, mm -hmm. and, you know, you're still in connection with people that you did shows with 20 years ago, yeah. you know, that there's this, this community that pulls together despite the, you know, the, the competition, obviously, you know, you're up for a role, all of that, but there's also a real sense, you know, for you as someone who's been in the industry as, as, as long as you have that, um, 
you know, you're a leader, that you're somebody to whom people look not just as a talent that they respect, but, um, you know, they they watch how you are and things. So I would love to know from your perspective, as you think about how you learned and the people who you learned mm-hmm. from, how you then pass that leadership on and what that means to you. Um, I think, you know, more than verbalizing what it is, it's really just living at, through example. Um, and the way you treat people and the way you treat everybody, not just your coworkers, but, you know, uh, the makeup people, the wardrobe people, everybody, because we're as in life, you're not a little ship out in the ocean by yourself. You have support and you are supporting people. Um, and the, it's a, it's a community, you know, every little, every little aspect of, what I've done is it's a it's a it's a joint effort. It's a community for as long that could it could be a day, it could be um, uh, for the six weeks you're doing something at a regional theater. You 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 come together and you are a part of that family. And um, I know I, I you know people that I've worked with over the years and. Um, I've done a, a couple of shores with uh, Kathy Rigby and we're, we're wonderful friends, but we don't see each other very often. But I was just doing a concert down in Southern California a couple of months ago and she and Caitlin, her, her youngest daughter, came to see the show. Then we went out to dinner and, you know, we always pick up where we left off. Um, and that's what I love about the business. It's the, it's the best and the worst thing about the business is because it's constantly changing, constantly evolving. And so, you know, you don't, it's, it's difficult to maintain the relationships as they were when you were working together on a daily basis. But there still is a real foundation um, that you carry with you for those relationships. And so when... Uh, you know, I just, as I said, you know, how I, yes, I, I tried just to lead by example. Mm. Well, it's interesting. And you talk about these relationships, um, you know, and when something has a solid foundation, it can go long periods of time and pick up where it left off. Cause it has something to go back to that when a connection is sound, when a relationship is sound, that And it comes from authenticity, you know, when there's integrity and authenticity to it, that it's a stable foundation. It's a really stable Mm -hmm. foundation. And what I find really interesting is there is such a, um, a belief, I think, for people who are outside the performing arts, you know, that it's, it's superficial and it's all about ego and it's, you know, you know, there it's like it's like make believe or pretend or whatever that that it's you know they go here they go there there's no connection there's no history, um, and the truth it could not be farther from the truth, actually, that the um, the nature of the relationships is deeply authentic. That in order to do the work that you do, you have to be 
the most authentic version of yourself first. Because if you're not the most authentic version of yourself and then you're going and you're putting on all of these other characters and doing all these other things, I mean, that's that's not going to scale real long. Also, you audition, you don't get a lot of stuff. There's a lot of no. Oh, you get there. There's much more rejection than there. there I've lost more roles than I certainly have uh, been casting. You know. What's the one that hurt the most? Like that you re maybe regret the most not getting. Um, I. It's funny, I, 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 I'm not one of those people that look back and go, oh, God, if I'd done that, my whole life would have changed or this. But there was one role that I, I did a workshop version. It was a new Alan Menken and Tim Rice had written uh, a musical called King David that was going to open the new Amsterdam Theater in New York. And this was before The Lion King. This was before Disney had any footprint in the theater business, in the live theatrical business. And they wanted, and I did the workshop of it, and they wanted me to do the production. And I, uh, I, I was also cast in a revi the revival of Candide at the same time. And I was asking for a guarantee that said, if you, okay, listen, I would love to do this. Because it was a role that, you know, you're playing King David going from a boy to an old man. It was an incredible art, and I had a real, real connection with this show. Um, and I asked if, if you know, if it goes forward, I want to guarantee that you're going to let you know let me do it. And they loved me, and they wanted me to do it, but they just couldn't do that. So I went and did Candy. And I don't even it, know that I ever heard of the musical. Did no, it ever end no, up going anywhere? Would, no, it, it never went anywhere. So you ended up making the right choice. <laughs> well, I guess. Because a, yeah. a revival of Candide is a pretty uh, nothing, good deal. Yes, nothing is ever going to happen with it, unfortunately, because it was a beautiful show. Some gorgeous music. And it's so funny because I ran into Alan Menken in all places in Germany when they were opening. What was it? I think it was Aladdin. Was it Aladdin? Yes, I think it was in Aladdin. I was overdoing something in Germany and 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 I went to the opening night and Alan was there and we had a conversation about it. And, uh, you know, and we just, and he, he brought it up. He said, you know, you know, we're, you know, I was always so sorry that, you know, you didn't do this production of King David. And I said, you know, Alan, I was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you have a favorite of all of the roles you've ever played? Do you have one? And it doesn't, I mean, obviously you're very well known for Phantom. You're very well known for Chicago. Um, you know, among others, you're very well known for many of them, but those would be the two that I think people you know, see, have seen you in, had the opportunity to see you in the, the most, at least in recent years. Is there, is there a role that you have played that, you just you loved everything about it, uh -huh. start to finish. That's really your well, your it, favorite. Yeah, um, um, uh, playing uh, King Arthur and Camelot, and there it's a it's it's a similar role in uh, to the King David, where you're you know you're a young kid and you mature into an older, wiser man. Um, and yeah, I love that role. That's also the role that I where I met Bernie. 
<laughs> he was he was one of my night of the nights of the round table. So it has many <laughs> fond memories. So what was it about this character in particular that really resonated for you? I mean, there's the breadth and depth of playing a character through the full life cycle, <laughs> obviously <laughs> a, a rich experience. What was it particularly about about the experience? You you got to play him as this young as this young um uh this young kid who really doesn't know a lot that that you know i mean you he learns so much over the course of this show um and he matures into this wise wonderful human being and you know there's the, the triangular relationship where he loves guinevere but he also loves lancelot and they love each other and and he sacrifices that for their happiness and while everything else is going on around him that he has to deal with and the under and 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 i'm hope you know you know you look at world figures and you see them on you know, on the world stage and how they, and the decisions they have to make. And they also are having to make personal decisions behind the scenes that you have no, no concept and clue about what is going on. And it's, uh, I mean, I don't know. I never wanted to be a politician. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, typically, life, typically is, life is hard enough. Typically, the people who want to be in politics aren't always necessarily the people we want that, that necessarily in politics. Let's yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, let's let the let's let the political conversation kind of end right with that. We'll right let, end it with that. Um, but you but bring up you an know, interesting point about humanity, though, right? That we um, part of the thing of playing historic characters, you know, brought to life in art. Um, historic or fictional, you know, either way, there there's a, a humanity to them that you get to unearth and figure out, you know, how would they deal with this? How would they deal with that? What's going on here? What's going on there? How would that affect their decision? You know, what would they do? How would they think? What would that do to their way of being? All of that. And, um, you know, there's an awareness um, as a performer, as an actor, um, that you that's required for the work that you do an awareness of people around you an awareness of body language and awareness of vocal tone and interaction as you've gone through your career and you know done deeper and deeper roles and 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 really fine-tuned your craft what impact do you feel that has had on the way you just move through the world the way you see things you know after you've maybe done a particular role that's set in a particular time. And then, you know, you see another, you see a, a trend like that happening in the world again, for example. Um, mm -hmm. What is that? What's that like for you? Um, I think it makes it it, it. it makes you more aware of what is going on and where the decisions that the people are making in the world could lead us if we're not careful. Different ways of slicing it. How do we become better humans? 
you know, part of it is by looking at history and looking at patterns and trying not to repeat stupid stuff. Yeah. Um, but humans seem to have a particularly uh, well-tuned forgetter that renders them oh, incapable and, of remembering the stupid ass they how, made and, in last and, week. And, and it's so, I mean, it's, the shelf life of their memory is so short. Well, of anyone's, of their memory, of you know? our memory, of anybody's memory. Of anyone, of humans' memory, you know. We're like goldfish. Exactly. We're like goldfish. Yeah. We're like, oh, wait, mm -hmm. when did that get mm -hmm. there? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, um, it just, uh, yeah, I know. I mean, but that's getting into politics, but it's like. Well, not necessarily. You know, like I'm two, not, not, two, no, like brand, two, no, brand. Like Seriously, no, no. though. I don't mean in a bad way. Yeah, but like in 2008, when we had the big, you know, we, when we had the big crash and we were, uh, you know, were, were we going to survive as a country? And well, when you were here in Vegas, were you here in Vegas in yeah, 2008? I was here. I bought my house, my first house in Vegas in 2006. 2008, it was worth half of what I purchased it for. <laughs> Two shame years we, later. Shame, shame we can't go back and buy it. <laughs> right? I know. Um, and I managed to hold on to it. And then, you know, I, I thought Vegas would never come back. Well, it's back, blazing, guns are blazing. Not another good analogy, but um, it, uh, but how quickly we forget where we were and what it took to dig out of that. And, um, and then how impatient we become because, oh, well, you know, things just aren't happening quickly enough. Yeah. 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 So when I say the word leadership, what comes up for you? What does that mean to you? Um, leadership. Um, with leadership, I hope that leadership comes with knowledge and history and honesty. Mm. All good things. Those are good things. All good things. I would agree with all of those things. So honesty, integrity would probably fit in there also. And it definitely, definitely. Kind of tucked in, tucked in with honesty. No. So but, it, yeah. I was going to say, so let's just say for sake of argument. And again, so disclaimer, this is not a political conversation. Not Absolutely not. Okay. No. Okay. So let's say that the G8... So the eight most powerful economically driven countries in the world were gathering and they said, you know, we're open to some citizens coming in and giving us their perspective on what they think that we get to do to be better leaders. Like they've all been hit in the head with a two by four and mm -hmm. they have like temporary amnesia and we have this golden opportunity to send in just a group of regular old people, people like you and me, to, to say, hey, you know, maybe you should try doing this. Or how about you do less of that? If you had that opportunity to talk to like the leaders of the free world to say, like, here's what leadership needs to look like. Like if I were in your shoes, I would do this. What would you say? Oh my. God, Kathy. 
I mean, it's a totally obviously. I mean, I made I made it as made up as possible. And there's a unicorn in the room. How about that? And there's a unicorn and a flying uh-huh. pig. Can I can I ride in on the unicorn? You can ride. You can ride in on the unicorn, but you may not let the unicorn stab any stupid people in the head. So the unicorn may not be used as a weapon. I mean, I have no idea where I'm going with this conversation. I think I okay. may have lost my I mind a little well, bit. Well, let's just talk about you know you know about about fear and about people who are afraid of other people for whatever reason coming in and and um, taking over, taking taking something that they feel belongs to them. Um, I'm just, I, I don't know. I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to work my way into this. Yeah. In, in, into into this, my, this, made, my made into, up unicorn scenario. Into well, your no, but, made up Well, but it's interesting because the first, the first word that came up for you was fear. Mm-hmm. So. Because I think so much of the world is operating on fear, um, from a place of fear where there, um, and there's a lot to be afraid of <laughs> out there. Um. But I, I think maybe a lot of it is displaced fear. I mean, the things about the world and about surviving and about just having a world to survive in, I think there's so little empathy in the world right now for people who have experienced these things and, re- and kind of come to the realization, this is a big problem. And we as humans, I think if we're not confronted with it, we just have blinders on and pretend that it's not happening. Um, Well, fear and empathy. I love that you bring those things up together because if I have empathy, my, it is very difficult for me to fear someone when I have empathy for them. mm -hmm. So, it it reduces, you know, that that those two things that by having one, I can reduce the other mm-hmm. pretty, pretty substantially. I can also remove the othering thing that happens. Yeah. You know, it's like there's, which comes from the, which comes from fear. Like if I, if I'm afraid of something and I make it something other than, and I kind of push it away, I can uh-huh. justify, you know, behaving in a bad way or something. You know, this, you know, this, this tragedy in Buffalo, this kid drove 200 miles to shoot up a supermarket with these people he doesn't even know. I mean, that makes less sense than shooting up a supermarket where he's from for people he knows, or this, but it just to go and to kill random people mm-hmm. because they are the other. Well, what, where what, does that, where does, where does that come from? Well, I, I, so I think we come right back to entertainment and art. So it used to all be live entertainment and art, right? We didn't have film, mm-hmm. didn't have television. You know, it was live performance and you were in the room. There's this kind of social contract, lights go down, lights come back, curtain comes up, lights come up, audience, there's the social contract. We sit there, we listen, and hopefully we like it. If we like it, we tell you. Mm-hmm. If we don't, we tell you, but there's this, uh, agreement and this experience of being shoulder to shoulder with people in this dark space, experiencing this thing with these people who are these generous, you know, being generous with their mm-hmm. spirit and their energy. Um, 
there's this, I mean, I'm not going to blame video games because it's not all video games fault. Um, but like, for example, I was given a VO audition yesterday that um, I declined. I declined it um, because I looked at the content and it was mm -hmm. a first person shooter game with the first person shooter being a female. Mm -hmm. And everything about her I found there was nothing redeeming about her to me. Yeah. And I thought that's not a voice. That's not a being to which I want to give mm -hmm. voice. Mm -hmm. I don't want to breathe any life into that. Yeah. That's the, and, the worst example. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and when something is detached, it's like we teach children games where they're in this first person shooter. So it's like, they're not even like a character that like, if they get killed, they don't even see themselves getting killed because it's a first person shooter game. So the, it's like, you're looking through their eyes. Right. And I think about, you know, someone operating a drone out of a remote location and dropping a bomb somewhere 15,000 miles away. And the, the detachment. Right. It's, it's, uh, you, it's like playing a video game in that respect. As a performer, as an artist, as someone who you bring voice to things, you, you create things that bring joy and provoke people's thinking and provoke their emotions. And what, what does that feel like to know that you get to have that kind of impact on a, on people's lives, right? In a really positive way, right? That, you know, so forget that like the darkness, we're not going to solve the problems of the world today. Yeah. We're not political theorists. Mm -hmm. That's not why we're here, but it just, what, what comes back around for me is so like you have this remarkable, well, you have a remarkable talent, first of all, and a remarkable gift and that you bring that to your audience and you kind of flay yourself open, you put on another character, you kind of like set yourself aside, you kind of embody something and you bring something to provoke and evoke and inspire. And what is that experience like? Bernie and I did a show together, <clears throat> I guess it's been a while now, about a year and a half ago here in Las Vegas. And we called it Islands in the Stream. It was just basically we sang songs and told stories about our relationship. And all of the middle-aged, or no, probably the straight couples in their 60s and 70s came up and just told us how much they loved it and how they related to it because they went through the exact same experiences. And that is, and that was, I think that was the biggest surprise. You know, that it, it resonated with them. And I want to do this show down in Puerto Vallarta too. We end up spending some time down there. Because I think, um, as you say, we do have this platform, even if, be, even if it's a small, intimate cabaret space, that we do have the ability to reach out, to touch people, and maybe open up their minds in a very small way. How does that, how does yeah. that, how does that feel? 
it it's very rewarding. You know, it makes you feel really good that because when I first moved to New York, my agent just said, "Listen, we don't care who you talk to, we don't care who you sleep with, we just don't want to know about." Because that was in 1979, 1980. It was a very different world. It was a very different world from when I went from moving, coming out to Vegas to do Phantom in 2006. I was living in Midtown, 42nd Street, in a building called the Armory. And I, we, I came to Vegas, spent three years in Vegas. And when I came back, it was like Midtown. It was all of these young gay boys were just walking around the street holding hands. It's like I went, I, I, I left Kansas and went back into Kansas and it was a totally different world. And I, and I, and Linda ended up being in Oz, you know, it's like, yeah. well, when did all this happen? And I love the stories that you tell. I mean, you tell stories about Leonard Bernstein, about Lauren Bacall, um, you know, you tell these stories of, of these, you know, Stephen Sondheim, of these legends of musical theater, of classical music, of musical theater, of film, of entertainment. And um, and I loved your, you did this great uh, retrospective show that I got the great opportunity to see here in Las Vegas, where you, you know, do a lot of the numbers, you know, you show some great video from Grand Hotel, which I didn't realize that the Tony performance from Grand Hotel is one of the top rated YouTube, like it's one of the most watched YouTube videos of of like Tony Award, like when you look at Tony Award history and yeah. clips of the Tonys that are on YouTube, that yeah. the clip of you, is it have another drink? What's the, what, what's the? Uh, we'll take a glass. We'll take, yeah. we'll take a glass together. together. Um, I, when I saw the video for the first time in your show, I think I actually remember watching the Tonys mm -hmm. that year because there's that bar, there's like the freestanding, like they're holding a bar, but you're, it's, and it's kind of, it's un, it's unmistakable. Um, but it's such a, you know, what it's is it? Joyous. Like? It's joyous. You know, it's, it's just it's joyous. pure joy. It's joyous to watch. And every time I watch it, it's like, yeah, okay, that's me when I was 32. But it was, it's just such a, Fabulous number. And I love watching people's faces watch it. Yeah. So um, where I'd love to kind of close with you today as, um, as you think about bringing that joy and you think about that, just that experience of, of touching lives the way that you get to touch lives, um, what's next? And and, and what do you do from here? Um, I don't know. I got a call about doing an off-Broadway show in New York, but it's, it starts the beginning of August and it goes through the holidays and we're just getting ready to move um, houses. We've sold our big house here. We're getting a smaller house in Vegas and getting a little condo in Puerto Vallarta. And we're going to start splitting time. And it just isn't, isn't, uh, the timing isn't good. Um, if, if, but certainly if the right, if the right show came along, I'd go back to New York just for a period of time. I can't imagine ever living there full time again, but, um, I'm doing my concerts. I'm going to Jersey tomorrow to do a, Broadway tenors concert and then the four phantoms are going to be picking up again 
in the fall. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep doing what I do, um, just not eight shows a week. <laughs> and I'm in, I'm just so lucky and fortunate to be in a position that I can do that. You know, I I've always been a very positive, forward-thinking person, and so I'm just gonna just um, keep traveling down that road. This is Talk Unleashed. Sit tight. We'll be back right after this. What is home? I'm pretty sure we all know that lesson that Dorothy learned in The Wizard of Oz. You know, home is where the heart is. It's not a place. It's a state of being, a state of mind. And yet we live in a society where the place somebody lives is a mark of anything from status, reputation, to professional credibility. Home. I've never not had one. The day I was born, my parents carried me up the steps of the house they had just finished constructing. And it's the house I would walk out of 18 years later when I went to college. Anytime I've moved, I've always had a next landing pad. Until now. I had to go over to my storage unit to pick up a couple things and I rolled up the door and just stood there. It's a cavernous space. It's 10 feet wide, 22 feet long. I don't even know how tall it is, but it is filled to the rafters back to front with stuff. It reminds me of this old George Carlin routine where he talked about the accumulation of things and that a house, it's essentially just a pile of stuff with a lid on it. Then we get a bigger and bigger pile of stuff with a bigger lid and then we get a garage where we put more stuff and in the end, do we really need any of it anyway? And does it really define anything? I'm sitting in my current crash pad surrounded by some stuff and I'm content. And yet there's this underlying sense, this sense of yearning for a place, a place that belongs to me, a nest. There's something about that that feels comforting in, in the way that the internal knowing of that I'm okay no matter where I am just isn't the same. Maybe that's the lesson. Maybe that's the journey. I get to be curious about this. Lean in. Who knows? Maybe it'll turn out that Glenda the Good Witch was right. Maybe it'll turn out George Carlin was right. Maybe I don't even need that pile of stuff. Stay tuned. Thanks for stopping by. If it's your first time, I'm so glad you joined us. And if you've been here before and you're back for more, splendid. Glad to have you here. Either way, make sure you don't miss out on the great conversations we have coming up on Talk Unleashed or the great library of ones we've already had for that matter. Hit up your favorite podcast player and subscribe. And while you're at it, do me a favor, leave a review. Okay, it feels pretty good when people say nice things, but the truth is the reviews also help people find the podcast and sharing is caring. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the village of people around me, my family. In particular, John McLean and the amazing team at Monster Sound and Picture. Thanks, John. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. 
I look forward to having you back next week for another episode of Talk Unleashed. Unleashed.